taking three weeks to look at the unique facet of Christianity, uh, unique in the context uh, not just of the world at large, but also in the context of the Abrahamic religions, uh, unique to Islam, unique to Judaism, unique to Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, unique in the fact that singleness is seen as a good, as a blessing, as a viable option, and a place where you can lovingly serve God and find a fulfilling life. And so last week, we talked about uh, how the idolatry of sex often gets in the way of this, uh, and we talked about how a celibate life uh, can be a good life, and we saw that in Jesus himself, who, as we talked about this morning, was fully human, completely human, experienced the full totality of humanity, uh, it did all the things that pleased the Father, and yet was not married, was not sexually active, uh, and so modeled for the church a, uh, a good way of being. This morning, uh, uh, we are going to talk about the fact that the future is single, which I know is a weird thing to say. Uh, so let's not put it off any further and get right into our text. Uh, if you have a Bible this morning, you're going to want to turn it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, you should find one in the back of the pew in front of you. And you can turn uh, to the index right in the opening pages of that Bible to find the New Testament book of the Gospel of Matthew, again, chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, please. If you're traveling, if you're taking a journey, especially if we kind of strip the world of all of its technology, all of its iPhones and GPS, uh, and we just talk about travel in the context of horizons, rightly understanding where your destination is, where you're trying to get to, tremendously shapes and informs the trip you take. Okay. It changes the way you make provisions for the chip trip. It changes how early you can say, are we there yet, and not be annoying, right? It changes uh, how you feel about the trip and when you camp every night. Everything about it changes by if you know that the horizon is near or if it's far. And there's nothing harder than thinking you've arrived and realizing you haven't even started, right? Um, and Therefore, it's important, not just in travel, but in human life, because we are hope-driven people. We don't just live in the moment. Be honest with yourself. We live for tomorrow. We always do. We set a goalpost, and we run for it. We, we cross the tape of finish line, and we set a new finish line, and we start out again. We're future-oriented people. One of the problems that comes in our life uh, is many of us often settle for horizons that are too near. We draw a line in the sand and we say, this is where we'll find our meaning, this is where we'll find our significance, and then we arrive and it's kind of like trying to get to the end of a rainbow. It's always elusive, and even when we find it, we find that what we were really looking for is beyond another set of hills, okay? That's also true when it comes to marriage. Now, what we're going to look at this morning is two statements 
of Jesus, given very close proximity both in our text and probably in Jesus' ministry as well. This is during the last week leading up to his crucifixion as he's teaching in Jerusalem. And much like we saw last week, Jesus is approached and asked a question, this time not by the Pharisees, who were the conservative religious leaders of Judaism, but the Sadducees, who were the more liberal uh, party of the Jews. And for the Sadducees, the possibility that there was some sort of an eternal state, some sort of heaven, a full resurrection for all people, anything beyond the grave, seemed very implausible. And so they're coming to Jesus to make his belief in an afterlife, in a resurrection, even in the coming of the kingdom of God, look foolish by presenting a hypothetical question. Okay? And so the question that they ask is a little bit complex, and so I'm going to summarize it before I read it, and then we'll read it together. But basically they come and they say, what about a woman who marries a man, doesn't have any children with this man, he dies, and as a widow she marries his brother? And he dies, and so on down the line until she's married all seven brothers of the same family. And then with a stupid grin on their face, they say to Jesus, in heaven, whose husband, whose, or whose wife will she be? Which one will be her husband? And the tension here is the tension between the clear ideal in the Old Testament of marriage between one man and one woman and the tension of... Uh, many marriages in the context of another command that's given in scripture known as the leveret law what we want to focus in on is not uh, the question and only a small part of the answer as much as i love to teach from this text because jesus's answer is full of provocative truth um, there's just one thing we want to mention but for context let's go ahead and read together starting in verse 23 that same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no, no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother, so to the second and third, down to the seventh. After uh, them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they, are, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what it was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now I want to draw your attention to one more thing before we pray and before we talk, and that is another place in chapter 22 in, very, in verse 1 where Jesus is giving a parable. A parable is an extended metaphor that compares things in everyday life to spiritual things to help us understand them. Here he's talking about the kingdom of God, his primary focal point message that he's giving as he travels. And here he says, if you want to understand the kingdom of God, and I want you to notice what he says, it's like chapter 22, verse 1. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Okay. Notice the tension there. Over here, he says, when the kingdom of God comes, no more marriage. And he, over here, he says, when the kingdom of God comes, it will be a wedding. 
That's what we want to reflect on this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would instill uh, instruction in our heart by your word. We want to place ourselves underneath your word this morning. Uh, We want to hear you speak, and we want to respond uh, in obedience and in worship, and we need your help for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is drawing a horizon. He's talking about the resurrection, what theologians like to call the consummation of all things. When everything's tied up in a bow, when everything is finished, the finish line of what God is doing in human history, that's what he's talking about. And on one side, he says the Sadducees mischart that, and he says you don't understand the scriptures, you don't know the power of God, and he says also you don't understand, again, look at verse uh, thirty. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He says you err in expecting marriage to continue into the eternal state, into heaven, after the resurrection. He says you err in thinking that marriage uh, is about the end of all things instead of just being a temporary and earthly provision. Now, that might sound like a weird thing to say, but we repeat this refrain in most of our traditional weddings all the time. When you marry someone, you marry them till when? Till death do us part, right? It's written into this idea. And so Jesus recognizes and identifies and lays his finger on the temporariness of marriages on earth. But simultaneously, maybe even hours before, in the context of the same week, Jesus also says you cannot understand where we're headed if you don't think about a wedding. And he doesn't just do that in this one place. Sometimes when he's speaking, he identifies himself as the bridegroom. It's a title he uses for himself. It's one that John the Baptist, his forerunner, uses for him as well. The first miracle that Jesus does in John chapter 2 is a miracle at a wedding where he transforms water into wine. And most commentators like to point out that he chooses that as his coming out revelation of who he is to make himself known. John identifies it as one of the seven signs that John records to help us understand who Jesus is. For Jesus and for John, that miracle being set at a wedding is significant. In fact, it continues throughout the New Testament, looking forward to the end of all things. When John, in Revelation, is seeing what God is going to ultimately and finally do, he calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper of Jesus. He says, blessed is everyone who has an invitation. And then when he sees the new Jerusalem, heaven itself descending uh, down and being the place where God will dwell with people and people with God, he says, and I saw Jerusalem descending like a bride. Okay, and so this imagery runs through the New Testament. No place is it more poignant than Ephesians chapter 5. Here Paul is giving exhortations to husbands and wives. And he opens up and he gives his exhortations. Husbands, lay your life down for and love your wife as Christ loves the church. Uh, Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. So it draws this same parallel between Jesus and our relationship with him and the relationship between a husband and wife. But the kicker is at the end when he gives it its scriptural precedent. 
He says, husbands and wives behave this way because the Bible says so. And he does, as they always do in the New Testament on issues of sex and gender, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. And he says, all of this should be the case because it says in Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then he says this, brothers and sisters, this is a great mystery, but I am telling you that these words speak of Christ and his church. He says that proclamation over the first wedding all the way back in Genesis is actually about or maybe better language would be more fully about what God is going to do in Jesus than it is merely about Adam and Eve or about every wedding that follows in its footsteps. Okay. Here's what we are saying. How do we reconcile the tension? Heaven is like a wedding. Heaven is not a place for marriages. Okay. This is what's going on. God has so designed the marriage relationship uh, that it is a sign pointing to what God ultimately wants to do for us, not in a relationship with another human being, but in a relationship with himself in Jesus Christ. God has so created marriage to be a lens or a symbol or a picture or a placeholder to point to and to demonstrate and give us the shape of where everything is headed. And so when Jesus reminds the Sadducees here that marriage is temporary, he's not just throwing it out and saying it's not a big deal. He's just saying don't mistake the sign for the thing that it signifies. Uh, to use a Buddhist expression, don't mistake the moon for the finger that's pointing at it. Okay. Excuse me, the other way around. Don't mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon itself. This is what we need to understand this morning. Going back to what I said about horizons, there is a common danger in human life because of the goodness of what marriage is. And remember that, that marriage, biblically, is one of God's oldest gifts. In the creation narrative, every day God makes something, he speaks it into existence, and then he assesses it, and it was good. And it happens over and over again. But on the sixth day as he creates a single man, Adam, and places him in the garden, he says for the first time, it is not good. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay? And so marriage, by design, completes the design and leads to the very good that God pronounces over all of creation. But the danger is that we would replace it from being a good or even a very good and make it a final good, an ultimate good, a finish line, a horizon, okay? And we need to recognize that this is uh, problematic for our culture at large. How many films end with a wedding? Even when we say, and they all lived happily ever after, we need to understand for us as Christians where that happily ever after is. If we don't, two things will happen. Okay. If you mistake the sign for the thing it signifies, one, you will over-elevate and obsess and focus on and prioritize the sign. Because let's, I, I probably used this illustration last week, but let's just make this very practical, okay? Imagine you're taking a trip to Disneyland. 
I've done this before, and if you drive on the freeway, it's exciting when you see the sign that says Disneyland, this exit, okay? But not once in my trips, probably not once in the history of people on their pilgrimage to Disneyland has somebody pulled over next to that sign and gone, it's here, we arrived, right? <laughs> I would also assume, I can't be as confident about this one, that never once has somebody been distracted in their driving, missed that sign, gotten to Disneyland, and been disappointed. Right? and gone, oh, shoot, we missed the sign. Okay. What I'm suggesting to you is if we take a biblical understanding of marriage, two things are always true. For those who experience it, it will never live up to the deepest longing you have or to what it points to. And for those who don't experience, it doesn't sever you, it doesn't cut you off from, it doesn't keep you from experiencing the full totality that it points to. When we understand that, it changes the way we view these things. And so one danger is that we would elevate marriage to the place that it becomes essential for human well-being, elevate it to the place where it becomes definitive for maturity or even for righteousness, that you haven't really fulfilled God's will until you've found a spouse, settled down, and had kids. Or the other danger is you will get those things, and because they don't live up to your false horizon, because they don't live up to the heavy weight you've placed upon them, you will literally destroy your spouse with your expectations. Okay. Notice how close the relationship is here. Marriage points to Jesus. If we mistake our spouse for our Savior, they will let us down. And it's a good thing they do, because they cannot save us. They cannot give us the significance we long for in human life. They cannot fix us, even though they probably will try to. They cannot bring about the satisfaction we need to recognize as Christians, and this is true of your career. This is true of the possibility of marriage and family and the American dream. It's true of wealth or anything else in life. We have to agree with Augustine, who in the fourth century said, our hearts, God, are restless until they find our rest in you, okay? So, because Jesus has come, and because Jesus will come again, and because we as Christians live in this world, it changes the paradigm. It opens the possibilities for faithful and God-pleasing and fulfilling lives. And so it's not a surprise, not only is Jesus even in his 30s, unmarried and unintending to get married and doesn't have any children, but also many of his disciples in the New Testament follow suit. And so Paul lives life as a single man and encourages other people to consider the same possibility. He doesn't see it as being uh, guaranteed, temporary, something he's hoping will work out or that he'll fix. He doesn't see himself as being on the shelf until he takes care of this thing. He doesn't see himself as being disqualified from ministry. He doesn't see himself as incomplete until he finds the one who completes him. Instead, he looks at Jesus, and I would suggest to you, based on the context of the chapter we're about to look at in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he looks at Jesus' words here, and he draws some different conclusions. Okay. Here's the point. For all of us, your future 
The one that is perpetual, the one that is eternal, and the one that is final is single. We tend to think, as human beings, at least in a Western setting, that singleness is the temporary part of our life. And then we get married. And that's the permanent part. But actually, all of us are born single. All of us live at least in some sort of temporary single. And then whether we get married or not, that marriage will not last. And I'm not saying that in some sort of despairing way. Death comes to us all. Okay? Uh, and even, even if it doesn't happen in this life, if Jesus returns tomorrow, we will move from the sign to the thing that signifies, and that life will be a life of single. Now, I pointed this out last week. This is big, deeper, profound theology. It's not necessarily practical, but recognize that the product of those marriages does exist into eternity. When it says in Revelation that, uh, that an unnumerable multitude of tongues, tribes, languages, ethnicities, and nations praise Jesus, all of those things are products of sexual relationships. The brothers and sisters that we will have in heaven are the product of sexual relationships. Humanity going from two in the garden to the multitude we find in Revelation runs right through the path of God's design for marriage. Okay. All of that is interrelated, but that points again to the fact that marriage is a part of God's plan and not the point of God's plan. Okay. So, let's go ahead and look at some practical implications for us this morning looking at Paul's understanding of these things in 1 Corinthians. So if you turn just a few books deeper into the New Testament, past the Gospels, Mark, Luke, John, uh, past the book of Acts, past Paul's letter to the Romans, and find 1 Corinthians, turn to chapter 7. And the purpose of this chapter, Paul is writing to a letter, a letter to a church that he planted in Corinth that is full of problems. Okay. Some of those problems he's heard about, and so he's written them just to come head on and address them. Other ones they've written him about and said, hey, we have a question. We're in that second category now. If you look just at chapter 7, verse 1, it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Okay. Now let's talk about the questions that you had. In this chapter, all the way from verse 1 to the end there in verse 40, he's dealing with issues of marriage, divorce, uh, betrothal or engagement, singleness, widowhood. He kind of covers the gamut. This morning, we're just going to focus on his comments about the single, but I want you to notice how related 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, here, I want you to notice how it's related to what we were uh, reading uh, what we were reading in Jesus's words. Specifically, I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though those who had no good and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present form of the world is what is passing away now to be very clear here we've just read this out of context you only have to read a few verses earlier to understand that uh, Paul isn't calling for the annulment of all marriages 
He's not saying, look, I know some of you are married. It doesn't matter. Forget it. Walk away. There's something better now. That's not what he means. In fact, he also doesn't want us to walk away from our jobs. When he talks about having dealings with the world, he's talking about your career. He's not saying, cancel your plans, find a hill with a view, put on a white robe, and sit and watch the sky because Jesus is coming back. That's not the point. What he's actually doing here is he's recognizing that the kingdom of God, even though it is not yet consummated, has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ. Okay? And so the day, if you will, of what God is doing in Jesus is already dawning. And so he's pointing out that that changes our perspective. Notice here he doesn't just address uh, marriage, but also the highs and lows of life, our rejoicing and our mourning. He says those who rejoice as though they didn't rejoice, those who mourn as though they didn't mourn. What he's recognizing here is we now understand in Jesus Christ that the best this life have to offer pales in comparison to what God has for us in Jesus. And to quote Paul's own words, he doesn't consider even the sufferings of this life worthy to be compared to the inestimable glory of that which is to come. Okay? It relativizes things like marriage and career because it puts it in the big picture perspective. Do you see how he's building on the same foundation that Jesus was? This present time is passing away. In other words, if you live a life of singleness, you live it prophetically, pointing to the coming and true reality. Marriage, like we saw in Ephesians, gives the shape of what God has for us in Jesus Christ. But singleness demonstrates the sufficiency of what God has for us in Jesus Christ. So let's look at how he unpacks this practically. The first point I want to make this morning is one about contentment. Okay. Notice what he says in verse 22. He says, for he who was called in the Lord. Uh, actually, sorry, I want to start higher than that. Verse 17. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and that which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now pause. Before he illustrates here, remember we're not really talking about circumcision or about slavery or any of these things. We're talking about marriage and singleness. He's illustrating from other categories, but keep in mind what we're actually talking about. He says, verse 18, was anyone at one time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is the freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. Now, notice there, he's not talking about the institution of slavery. He's talking about the status of being a slave. He's talking about class differences. And he says, don't worry if you're just a slave. In fact, he says, if freedom is a possibility, remember this is not 19th century race-driven, stealing people from Africa slavery. This is Roman Empire slavery. This is selling yourself because of your debts into slavery. This is working off your debts. There's a lot more involved. There are horrible versions of slavery in the Roman Empire, but we tend to just view it all through that lens. But the point here is one of status. He says, don't worry that you're just a slave. God can still use you. 
okay? In fact, I want you to notice how he takes the role of master and the role of slave, and he relativizes both of them. Again, in verse 22, he who's called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Whatever chains you have in life, Jesus, in a big and more significant way, has given you a freedom that's greater. And then he says, likewise, he who's free when called as a slave of Christ. You may be subject to no man, but if you become a Christian, you are subject to Jesus in a deeper way than you've ever owed to another human being. Okay? Do you see how he's putting it all in the context of the big picture? Remember here, he's illustrating with marriage. And so we could say very confidently, applying Paul's message this morning, if when you became a Christian, or if as you sit in this room right now, you're married, don't seek to be unmarried. And if you're sitting here and you're single, don't seek to be married. Okay? The issue here is one of contentment because the deeper issue, the need underneath your need, the longing underneath your longing, the love underneath your love has been so fulfilled that it makes these things optional. Not just in the big picture, but pragmatically. Okay? And so the first thing that we need to understand and the first thing that I would encourage you towards this morning is just don't make such a big deal about it. The church has dangerously and foolishly made both mistakes. One, elevating a life of singleness to being one of truer devotion and more holiness. Okay? For centuries, the church saw a perpetual virginity and a monastic life where you became a monk or a nun as being somehow better off or more holy or more serving to God. Since the 1960s, at least in a Western setting, the church has swung the other way and has now elevated marriage, okay? And we do this both in the way that we think about things. We think, okay, this person's not mature enough for this role in the church because they can't even get married, okay? I know we never say these things. I'm talking about our thought life, okay? Or, or we constantly harp on it as if this is the one big thing God wants to do in a single person's life is find them a spouse, right? So we always ask, when are you going to get settled down? Are you seeing anyone, right? It is a driving point of conversation in the church, okay? It is a mistake. There are churches in this country who would feel Paul is disqualified from preaching in their churches. That's problematic. There are churches in this country who wouldn't invite Jesus onto their staff until he settles down, okay? We're clearly off base, right? Okay, and so the danger is both over-elevating marriage or under-understanding it. That's a terrible word, but I'm going to use it anyways. Under-understanding it, putting it on too low of a base. It is a good, but it's not a good that God has for everyone. It's not a good, uh, it's not the only good on the table, and so that should drive us towards contentment. To summarize verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition you were called, let him remain with God. Christian worst-case scenario game, whatever your circumstances are, with, uh, are now, that one is permanent. It's irreplaceable. It's constant. If you've believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as Paul says, neither height nor depth nor power nor principality, things that are nor things to come, poverty or wealth, suffering, persecution, even death, nothing can take God's love from you. That relationship is stable and permanent and not at risk. So that leads us to an underlying sense of contentment. Because not only is the horizon further than all those things, 
but our arrival is guaranteed, right? Okay, second point here, and this is an important one, verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not yet sinned. Okay, this is not an issue of right and wrong, good and bad, sin and righteousness. Now, Paul is speaking in a time and in a culture from a Jewish understanding where failing to marry is a failure to obey the first commandment that God gave, be fruitful and multiply. The Jews uh, believed that in the commandments of the Old Testament, there were 613 positive commandments, things you must do as a Jewish man to fulfill the law. And the first one on the list, the first one written in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. And so sometimes rabbis would say things like, if you have not yet fathered a child, you are not yet a man. That is the culture Paul is speaking in. And so he says here, if you, if you don't marry, you haven't sinned. If you marry, you haven't sinned. Okay? He's opening it up. Uh, but we need to recognize, and you need to recognize, that being single is not an issue for guilt. Period. That's true of the people you know who are single, and it's true for those of you who are single in your self-assessment. And... If you're currently single and you love your life with the Lord and it frees you up to do a lot of things and you meet somebody and you decide to settle down, it's not an issue of sin. You don't have to worry, am I surrendering to something that's against God's will? Am I settling for something less? Now, there is a danger there and we'll talk about that, but it's not a danger of right and wrong. Okay. Okay. The next one he follows up with, he says in verse 28, if you do marry, you've not sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. If we understand the sign and the thing that signifies, if we have the thing that signifies, it's locked down and guaranteed in Jesus Christ, then the next thing we see here is it provides the possibility of a wise detour of a thoughtful decision not to walk a certain road because you know this other road gets there as well. And specifically, he says, I would spare you worldly troubles. Now, if you grew up in the church, there's a tendency to read that word worldly as wicked. Okay, that's not what he means. He means everyday troubles. Okay, he's talking about the basic cost that comes with being connected with another person, the modern inconveniences that come with marriage and family, okay? If you were a single person and God speaks to you in the middle of the night and says, I want you to come to this place and serve in this way, it's very likely you can just call your boss, pack your bags, get on a plane and go, okay? In fact, I think actually flying in general is a good illustration of this, okay? I have five children. And sometimes, I'll be honest, there are times where we're walking through the airport and it looks like that slow motion scene from the right stuff. Where everybody's looking at it and they're impressed because holy cow, how is everybody making it? It's peaceful, it's right. But other times it looks just like that scene from Home Alone, okay? It's total chaos and I'm surprised we haven't left our kid, okay? Travel is different when you travel with family. The cost of living is different, okay? Everyone who knows me knows that I believe in pastoring where you live and living where you pastor. Everyone who knows me knows I'm committed to the neighborhood of Capitol Hill, but we just officially last week got priced out of the neighborhood because I have a family of seven. 
And we were actually being turned away from certain places that we could afford because, quote, our family was too big. If we had had less kids, or if I was single, it'd be a different game. Okay? These are the challenges that Paul is talking about. He wants us to honestly weigh the difficulties and the hindrances and the problems that come with marriage. And there's some really big ones, by the way. Okay? Committing yourself, in the biblical sense, permanently to another person is risky. You are uniting to another person and you inherit not just uh, economically their debts, but you also inherit their future, whatever may come. That's why we say in sickness and in health. The danger is not usually, the danger is not usually uh, infidelity. It's not usually that somebody just gives up on the marriage or, or locks down, but those things can happen, okay? In fact, and I wanna be sensitive here, I wanna be careful because there's a way that I don't mean this, okay? Just because you're single, doesn't mean you don't have significant relationships and experience tremendous grief when people suffer. However, I think when, uh, when in Sarah's song, the Death Cab for Cutie song, when he communicates that love is watching someone die, I think there's a full-blown real, real truth to that, okay? When it talks about worldly troubles here, if you read the context, Paul's talking about the present time. He says, in the present time, this is the wisdom that I would give you. Something is going on in Corinth that is hard and will make marriage and family even harder. If we align history rightly, and we know when this letter was written, the, the 60s of the first century, uh, we know that Corinth had a really bad famine. And that's another good illustration. When things get rough and you have to go without dinner, it's different than when someone you love has to go without dinner. It's different than watching your kid be unable to eat for days on end. I know we're very removed from things like famine today, but these are the things that Paul is talking about. Think of severe times of persecution in the Christian church where people are being put to death or watching their family being put to death. These are the things that Paul is talking about. Now the problem is, uh, in the words of Sam Albury, we often weigh the cost of singleness against the goods, the benefits of marriage. And that's an unfair measurement. All Paul's trying to get us to do is weigh the costs of one towards another. And he says, it may be wise and even worthy to spare yourself the trouble that comes with marriage. And remember, those aren't my words. That's not my advice. That's Paul's advice. That's scripture. Okay. Let's look at another one. Look at verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Let's take that first statement, or that last statement first. He says, I'm not saying this so you feel guilty because you want to get married, right? He says, I'm not trying to lay a burden on you. Instead, he says, I'm trying to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Remember, if this marriage is the sign of the thing that signifies, 
remember that that impacts not just single people, but also married people. That's why Paul says, any, uh, uh, if you are married, if you have a wife, live as though you had none, right? It's that full relativization. He's talking about good order, and what he's recognizing here is, to put it in the most positive and clear terms, that singleness presents a greater possibility for freedom in devotion or, um, uh, or singleness in devotion to Jesus. Okay. Many of you know our uh, resident medical missionary, Chris Rep. And if you get her emails about her globe-traveling mission trips that she takes regularly, she always signs them honeymooning with Jesus. Okay. What does she mean when she writes that? I don't want to speak for her, but obviously what she's recognizing is both that her relationship with the Lord is significant and primary and everything she's doing is tied to that, and by calling it the honeymoon, she's talking about how enjoyable it is. Okay. We as human beings tend to think the problem is one of discontentment, that that's our primary issue is that we just can't be happy with what we have. I would suggest to you that we have at least as big of a problem with settling. This is what C.S. Lewis says is the human problem. He says the problem is not that we desire too much, but that we desire too little. That God offers us these eternal weight of value things, and we settle for sex and a pipe and these types of things. He says, we are like children who turn down a day at the seashore, having never been to the beach, content to play with our mud pies. That's what Paul is talking about here. When he says, if you marry, you'll, ha you'll be anxious for the desires of your spouse, he's not condemning that. That's normal and natural. That's what love means. That's how Paul exhorts married couples to act, is to put one another first, to seek their best interest. All of that is good. But if you are not committed in that way, you were free to devote yourself wholly and completely and fully to Jesus Christ, to get up and go at the drop of a hat, okay? Uh, to love and serve Jesus. Again, marriage provides the shape of what God has for us in Jesus Christ, but singleness demonstrates its sufficiency. And Paul is speaking out of personal experience. Decades into adult life as a single person, on the road with Jesus, and he says, I think this life is better. I know some of you aren't in a place where you can hear that this morning. Okay. Right now, I would settle for, I think it's another good way. Okay. And let me just remind you of one more thing. When Paul talks about uh, Christ and the church in Ephesians chapter 5 and our marriage, if you will, to Jesus, remember he's not making that a consolation prize to single people. He's speaking it to married couples to saying, don't misorder, don't misalign what's most important here. This temptation, this danger is one that looks at all of us. And here's the thing. This is what I want to tell you this morning. If you are currently single and you decide because it frees you up for ministry to serve at the church, uh, serve at the church at the local or the international level, if you decide to follow Jesus more deeply and to abstain from marriage, you will not waste your life. It's not a waste. You won't come to the end. I'm not going to say you won't have regrets because none of us are that good at life, okay? I'm not even going to say that you won't be lonely on occasion or have hardship, but I'll tell you that we know that in marriage as well, okay? And sometimes it's much more lonely to feel alienated from the person you call your spouse than to not have one at all, 
These are real things, okay? But consider what happens in Bethany when Jesus, just a few nights before he's crucified, is sitting at the table and a woman named Mary comes in and she breaks an alabaster flask, one that's worth thousands of dollars in today's money, and pours it out over Jesus' feet. And the disciples look at that and they go, what a waste! Do you know what we could have done with that type of money? If we'd sold that, we could have fed the poor for months. And Jesus says, don't condemn her. What she's done, she's done for me. She's uh, anointed my body for burial. She better understands what's going on here than you do. And she says, and people, he, Jesus says, people for all time will talk about what she has done. Okay. The disciples only saw a waste. But nothing poured out on the feet of Jesus is wasted. Nothing. You know what's really interesting? Many commentators point out that the only value of that type of alabaster flask, which is not like a bottle of perfume with a lid, it's actually sealed, okay? When you break it, you break it and you open it up. The most utilized version of these things was as a dowry for marriage. And so she may even be exactly and practically putting Jesus first before her future in marriage, saying he's more important. And I'm telling you that that, if that's the reason for your singleness, it will never be regretted. I want to point out just one last one before we close. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So even for the widow or the widower, he lays out the same thing. He says, it's okay to remarry, to find another Christian spouse and settle down. But notice what he says, verse 40, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. Now, we may read that in our day and age and not get the significance of what Paul is saying. Do you know what the life of a widow was like in the first century? It was tremendously difficult. Because in losing her husband, if she didn't have any sons or children to take care of her, she was generally subject to destitution. She had no advocate. That's why Jesus uses widows in his parables as, as a place of helplessness, of a place of need. Okay? It's why we find the New Testament church taking care of widows and Paul even coming up with a ministry blueprint for taking care of widows in the church. When he looks here and says she is happier, the first thing we have to understand is that's in the context of a local church that lives in the way that Jesus has laid out as a new family God has created. Okay. And that's true of singleness in general. If the church isn't what the church is supposed to be, then singleness truly can be a curse and not a blessing. It can be. If we continue to see singleness as something that isolates people and keeps them out of the family instead of being a uh, verifiable and certifiable part of the body of Christ, as people who are in our homes and doing life with us, if we forget all of these things, then it can be. When he says a widow can be happy and remain unmarried, that is a profound statement on what God has accomplished in this new family we call the church. Okay? But removing that, it doesn't change the fact that he makes a positive statement and he says, in my opinion, she'll be happier single. Now, the word he uses here for happier is the same one that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed is the poor in spirit. It's the word blessed. 
He says a widow who remains unmarried, somebody who loses their spouse and enters into a life of singleness, he says, in my opinion, they will be more blessed. Okay. Now, I'd like to suggest a comparison here. This is not about semantics. This isn't about the meaning of words. It's just an illustration. But all of Jesus' beatitudes, all the blessings that he presents, are not common sense blessings. He says, blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who suffer for my name's sake. These are the happy people. These are the ones who are truly satisfied. And we go, really? And that's the point, okay? When Jesus is talking about the blessings of the kingdom of God, they are hidden blessings. They're counterintuitive. They don't make a lot of sense. I would suggest to you that at least for us today, singleness has that same thing. What, what it does when we understand the full signifying thing that's coming for all of us and that marriage is just the sign, it frees us up to ponder the hidden blessings. It opens us up to the possibility. Uh, and I want you to remember again here, Paul says, yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. Now, we can read that as him being a little bit of distance and saying, I'm just giving my opinion here. Okay. And that's definitely true. I do want you to remember here that his opinion is from personal experience. Okay. He's speaking from his own life. Okay. But notice what he says to finish this. He says that I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Having the Spirit of God in Corinthian parlance is a big deal. He's poking fun at the church. And he's going, but you should probably consider my opinion because I am the apostle of Jesus Christ, okay? So don't remove this as just being uh, an aside. This is just as much a part of the Bible as the verses that precede it, okay? Um, but we need to see here a potential for happiness that remains unseen. And I'm not saying it's mystical and you won't know it till you find it. I'm just saying we don't generally think about it so we don't know it's there. We don't generally explore this. And here's what I dream of. What Paul is promoting here, and a side note, we didn't talk about this, but a good deal of the people he addresses here are people who are already engaged. It's not people who are uncomfortably single because they haven't found someone yet. It's people who are on the cusp of marriage. And he says, before you go, consider something. Wouldn't, you, it, wouldn't that be interesting if that was part of your premarital counseling? <laughs> this is who he's talking to. And this is what we need to come to as a place if we're going to understand marriage in its context, if we're going to embrace singleness. We need to come to a place where we are open to ponder these things and can actually weigh them in the scales instead of assuming the outcome. Right now, I think for many of us, we think marriage is better. Marriage is the only. When in actuality, marriage is different. Marriage is different. And so, let me just review here. If marriage is just the sign of the thing that signifies in all of its good, it drives us to a place of contentment. If you are a have this morning, don't make more of it than it is. If you are a have not this morning, don't worry about it more than you should. Don't obsess over it. Don't get caught up in it. Don't waste your time trying to fix something that doesn't need fixing. Second, it's not an issue of right or wrong. If you go, but I really want to be married, be blessed, go, fine. If you know me, I'd say just mail order a bride. I, I think the way that marriage is designed is totally different than the way we think of it in our seek for the most compatible person. 
It is the incompatibility that is the design. Okay. Uh, but it's not an issue of right or wrong. If you want to be married, that's a fine desire. If it, Proverbs says this, he who finds a spouse finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That's not untrue just because of what Paul says here. It's another truth. Okay. Uh, third, consider the wise detour. Weigh the cost of marriage and realize that you don't have to pay it despite your parents' expectation, despite the world's expectation, despite romantic comedies envisioning of the future of your life and how it comes to be a good story. Your happily ever after is in a different place and that gives you freedom to weigh the costs and not just the needs. Okay. Fourth, consider it in the context of devotion. And for those of us who are married, recognize the risk of settling for satisfying your spouse or your children instead of the Lord. Recognize your risk in making them your point of rest and them your satisfaction and making them what you build your life on, which will fail you and crush them. That's how it works. And bring it back down to the place of one of God's created goods that points to the ultimate good. Okay. And then finally, be open to the possibility of hidden happiness. Don't say, if I don't find a spouse, then I will never be happy. Paul says, maybe you'd be happier. But again, I know some of you aren't in a place where you can hear that. I don't know if I'm honestly in a place where I can hear that. So I'll settle for happy. But nonetheless, Paul says happier. Let's pray. Father, my heart when we chose this sermon title, Embracing Singleness, was not just for people who are single to embrace it, but for the church to embrace singleness, both as a way of being uh, and as a facet, not an identity, but a facet of some people's lives within the church who have a full and functioning place in our family, something to give and a need to receive, and are part of the body of Christ. Our culture can see a life of singleness as a life without love, and we just need to call foul. We just need to say that's not true. I pray that you would help the church to hold marriage as good, to support those who are married, to celebrate those who marry, like we did last night for Erica and Sebastian, but also to celebrate those who are single who are fully and completely human and expressing that totality of humanity without the need to be completed by another person. That we would find ways to celebrate the benchmarks of the single life, not just the married life, not just birthdays and buying a house, but, uh, but everything that comes with the single life as well. And most importantly, Lord, I pray that we would be a family that makes this an issue at the level Paul presents it as one of logic and possibilities and consideration and not one of dire need and difficulty, Lord. Help us to have such strong, loving relationships as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as mothers and fathers and children in the Lord, as the family of God, that marriage can be seen pragmatically and functionally as it is as an option. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that the best is yet to come 
And that's true whether we're married or we're single, and that those things are secure and fully paid for in what Jesus has done and fully carried about by his work. And so we can stand confidently in the fact that we will arrive, that the ending of our story is triumphant and not tragic, and that we can devote our lives to following you and whether you pair us with a spouse or whether you call us uh, to continue on as single, it will be a life without regret, without a drop wasted, Lord. Help us with that in Jesus' name, amen.